What price on carbon would, together with regulations and public investment, enable the world to achieve the goals set out in Paris and Copenhagen of one and a half to two degrees? Most economists agree that we need to put a price on carbon if we are to tackle climate change. But how is that done? No doubt it's a complicated matter. Today I talked to Nobel Prize laureate and economist Joseph Stiglitz. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jonsson. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Today I'm speaking with economist Joseph Stiglitz. Stiglitz is an academic superstar. He won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2001 and is currently working as professor at Columbia University. From 1995 to 97, Stiglitz served as President Bill Clinton's Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers in the White House. He then became the Chief Economist of the World Bank from 97 to 2000 before he returned to academia. Hello, sir. Hi, how are you? Good to see you again. Um, yeah, so so thank you so much for, for joining me in, uh, in this uh, podcast. Sure. So you once said that the climate crisis is to be compared to World War III. Can you elaborate a little on that? Well, what I meant is, uh, by that was that we have to marshal all the resources that we have. Uh, it's an existential issue. And uh, one of the points I was trying to make is when we fought World War II, we didn't ask, could we afford it? <laughs> we said... Uh, we will afford it. Uh, we have to afford it. Uh, we cannot uh, not afford it. And in many ways, uh, climate change is the same way that uh, the threat to our planet is the risk is just too great to ignore it. So we've established that we need to fight climate change because it's a moral imperative. But asking you as an economist, does it also make economic sense to spend huge amounts of resources to fight climate change? Well, one of the things I, uh, I emphasize in the context of the pandemic is we're spending an enormous amount uh, in responding to the pandemic. And to the extent possible, we should make that money do double, triple duty because we have other crises. We have an inequality crisis at the same time. And uh, the good news is that uh, we can do that. Not every dollar spent is going to do uh, the same effect on all three of these crises, but um, <clears throat> there are a very large number of projects you might that uh, can uh, uh, do double or triple duty. And so 
as we think about the recovery, and the United States is spending an enormous amount of money, 25% of GDP, as we think about that, to the extent possible, we have to make sure that that money uh, helps in the green transition. Yeah, well, if we look at what happened after the financial crisis in, in 2008, 2009, uh, unfortunately, the opposite was the result of the many uh, stimulus packages adopted uh, around the planet, not everywhere, but many places. What happened was that the investment went into uh, old-fashioned infrastructure, into fossils. And of course, we have a big opportunity now to do it differently. Also, we have to admit there's a big danger that if we don't, if, if too many countries around the planet spend the money in the way that they've done previously, then we risk investing in some infrastructure that will, in many decades ahead, uh, bring us in, in a wrong direction. You're making a, a really important point here, which is when you're spending money on infrastructure or buildings uh, uh, that last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and we know from the science that we have to be carbon neutral roughly by 2050. So we are making decisions today that will determine whether we will be carbon neutral in 2050. You know, we're not usually in the position of having to say, what will the world be like in 2050? That's sort of a fantasy. But in the case of climate change, you have no choice. And that's why, the, the, this moment where the United States and Europe are really beginning to take seriously climate change is the right moment. Uh, we can't, we, you know, we waited, we, we recognized the problem back in 1990, before 1990. It's now been 30 years and we've done much too little. We are now at a very critical point. I agree with you totally, but I would also say that there's reasons for optimism. Uh, both the EU with its uh, uh, Green Deal, uh, the, the growth strategy that's, that's been deployed uh, now, uh, get, trying to help us out of, out of the corona crisis, but, but certainly also, of course, in, in the US with uh, the new administration and President Biden setting very ambitious targets and also investing a lot of money. Would you agree that there, there really is reasons for optimism? Oh, very much so. Um, but uh, it's a cautious optimism because, uh, as you know, in the United States, uh, under President Trump, uh, we went the other way. It wasn't just we were not doing as much as we should. Uh, there was a real retreat from what had been done under President Obama, which had not itself been enough. So, Unfortunately, in the United States and a few other countries, uh, climate change has been brought into the realm of the culture wars with those uh, on the right uh, attacking expertise, science. It's why the pandemic has killed over a half a million people in the United States. Uh, It is a a, a nativism uh, associated with all kinds of uh, you know, going back in time. Uh, so we, we have to recognize this particular political moment is a very difficult one. But uh, hopefully uh, even the, the political forces that has been opposed to taking real action on climate change, hopefully they will also see now that even if they don't feel so strongly, 
for actually preventing climate change, they might not even believe that it's real, they still might be able to see the economic incentive to do something. Because I, I think you would agree with me that we are looking into a decarbonized world in which uh, the companies, the countries that are uh, avant-garde, the ones that are, are moving forward the fastest in this development will also be most competitive. Well, absolutely. And uh, one important uh, instrument for making that happen uh, are the cross-border taxes, uh, the border adjustments that have been proposed in Europe. I've advocated for 15 years, argued that, in fact, they are not only consistent with WTO, but actually uh, are at the core, because at the core of WTO are unfair subsidies. And for a country not to bear, a uh, company not to bear the social cost of its actions is a subsidy. And part of the social cost of your actions is what you are doing to the destruction of the environment. And this is something that the European Union is now looking into. The Commission will put forward a proposal, a border adjustment taxation, meaning that uh, we will see whether or not we can uh, set up a system in which high regulation of our own industry, putting a price on carbon in, in Europe, does not just mean that jobs and production will move to other countries, for instance, China. And the idea is that if you then put a tax on things that you can import of, of, uh, uh, of the sort that is very uh, energy intensive, then maybe we can, we can remedy that, that problem. There are also some dangers there, though, because some, some people argue that, well, first of all, isn't this just protectionism from certain European countries? Others argue, well, you're just then now going into a war with, with certain countries, especially in, in Asia, among them a very big one, and that will actually hurt the, the cause. So what are your argument uh, towards them? These are issues that have been long discussed. Uh, the, uh, in my book, Making Globalization Work, I cite a famous case where the United States uh, argued that we had the right to impose a uh, cross-border action. In that case, it was on shrimp that were caught in turtle and uh, uh, unfriendly necks that were killing an endangered species. And there was a global agreement about not killing endangered species. And the WTO said, in that context, where there's a recognized global issue as long as the United States or any other country imposes that globally, you know, you don't pick out this country, you can be, you can kill turtles, with that country you can't kill turtles. That, that's not part of the rules-based system. But if you do it everywhere, that's totally consistent with the WTO. And, and as I say, it's more than consistent. The point of the WTO is creating a level playing field. And, and if you are uh, not paying for the cost of labor, that's a subsidy. Well, if you're not paying for the cost you impose in society in environmental destruction, that's a subsidy. And so I view that as absolutely core to the WTO. Well, that's an extremely interesting uh, point, and, and, and I also agree with you. I do 
see some debate that we before us and and definitely it's going to be a struggle but it will be put forward now as a proposal for, from the commission within a few months i guess what what is the situation in the us on this question is that something that's feasible in the near future well it, the irony is that there's actually a lot of support in the united states uh even among the conservatives because they think the United States behaves better than other countries. Now, there's a little bit of misperception here, but uh, the, the, the United States, under the Trump administration, submitted a proposal to the WTO in the last few weeks of the Trump administration that uh, 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 a provision like this uh, be viewed under the uh, be able to view it in the anti-subsidy provisions of the WTO. So the Trump administration actually supported something that was very close to this idea. So uh, I don't know if they knew what they were doing, but uh, the fact is that uh, on both the left and the right, there is an understanding that uh, it is a form of state aid not to make companies pay for their environmental costs. Okay, so now this, what we've talked about now is a border adjustment mechanism. Then, of course, another interesting uh, topic is how do we put a price on carbon, for instance, within the European Union or even within a country like my own, uh, and of course in the future on a global level. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about that? You've written extensively on that topic. Well, you know, uh, the core issue here is something that are very valuable to us are not correctly priced. Uh, we don't price carbon emissions. They have a social cost. Uh, we don't price water pollution. That has a social cost. So the question is, how do you go about putting a price? Uh, assess the social cost of carbon. And uh, there are a couple of different approaches. Uh, an approach, you know, I'll, I'll describe it fairly roughly, but an approach that that uh, Nick Stern and I have been engaged in is to ask the following simple question. Uh, what price on carbon would, together with regulations and public investment, enable the world to achieve the goals set out in Paris and Copenhagen of one and a half to two degrees. And uh, it's important for firms to see that price. So they say, we better not pollute because there's a social cost. And uh, we uh, uh, need to take that into account in our actions. It's also important for governments because governments are always evaluating is, is should we put a tighter regulation here? There's going to be a cost. And well, there's a benefit and the benefit is related to the social cost of carbon. So in everything governments and firms and actually households do, you need to assess uh, the cost of the action versus the social cost of carbon. And so you have to get it right. And if it's too low, there'll be too much pollution. 
If it's too high, people will say we're encountering excess costs. And uh, that's where the debate uh, has been. Now, uh, I've come out and said uh, one of the first actions that uh, President Biden did in the United States said we need to revisit the social cost of carbon that Trump had assigned, which was very, very low, and then making sure that we would not meet the Paris goals. And uh, I wrote uh, 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 some papers with uh, Nick Stern where, where we said the social cost of carbon should be upwards of $100 a ton. And um, uh, the Biden administration, in their interim report, they had only a, a short time and they didn't want to go through all the legal issues and all, uh, updated the Obama number, and they came up with a number of like $60, which was much lower than I think is necessary uh, at that $60, there is a real risk that we will have climate change, you know, three and a half, four degrees centigrade, and that should be viewed as intolerable. So that's really where I've, uh, I, I've come down on, on that issue. One thing that's being discussed in my own country right now, and, and, and I know also in many other countries, is how do you make a carbon price that goes uh, that can be applied broadly in the society. Now we do actually have a carbon tax in Denmark. We've had it since 1991, but it's only on certain fossil fuels. If we want one that covers also industry, agriculture, transport sector, that's extremely difficult to design in a way where we don't risk then carbon leakage because jobs will just move to other countries and production will move or Uh, negative social consequences uh, in terms of uh, higher inequality. How, how would you advise policymakers like myself when we are to construct such a, such a, such a system? Well, one of the reasons that in our earlier report, uh, Nick Stern and I emphasized, you want to use a multiplicity of instruments, not just the carbon price. So you want to use regulations, Uh, regulations are often criticized as cumbersome. Very easy to write a regulation. No coal-burning electric generating plants. You know, I could write it myself. You can see. You can enforce it easily. You can see. Is it using coal? Uh, you don't need a PhD uh, administrator to administer. He, anybody can see whether it's using coal. So, so we often make uh, this big deal about regulations being cumbersome and difficult to implement. Not true. There's a very important regulation, very easy to implement. So carbon price, regulations, and public investment. You know, for instance, one of the worries is if you have a, a gasoline tax, which discourages people to use gasoline, that has an adverse effect on those who have to travel far distances who are poor. True, but that's why you should have better public transportation. Uh, we should connect everybody with, uh, you know, uh, their homes, with jobs, through systems of good public transportation, which are carbon efficient and also help ordinary individuals, low and middle income individuals. So 
to me, I see a real congruence between those uh, different uh, objectives if we can use a whole portfolio of instruments. In terms of, of the issue about giving an advantage to foreign companies, that's where the border adjustment that we talked about a minute ago comes in. That is an absolutely essential part of the framework. As you know, in, in Europe, we, we don't have a common taxation, so so we would have to do it in, in individual countries. Now, we have a common internal market, as, as you know very well and have studied closely. So this means that... Um, If if we were to make a high price on carbon in Denmark, I wouldn't be able to make also a carbon adjustment tax towards Germany, for instance, or Poland. So how do I how do I make a system in which we have the high price on carbon, but I don't risk Danish farmers or or uh, having to close down in production just moving to Poland or uh, big production sites just moving to other countries where they might. And that would be a paradox, even pollute, pollute even more than Denmark because we have a higher regulation. Well, I think uh, you're beginning to recognize some of the uh, flaws in the design of the Eurozone and the uh, EU. Uh, the fact is that uh, you have to work towards uh, greater co- uh, coherence in the tax system. Uh, and you've seen it with... Uh, tax avoidance through Ireland and Luxembourg, a real problem. Uh, Ireland and, and, and Luxembourg could rob the rest of the EU of all their tax revenue uh, under current arrangements. Uh, so there's that's one flaw that people have begun to recognize. And uh, Margaret Vestager tried to, some ways to patch it up. I don't think it's a real patch. Uh, this is another one. So it would be good for Europe to create some mechanisms for common taxation across the whole EU. And uh, particularly important, now that in response to the pandemic, you've issued euro bonds. When you issue those euro bonds, you should have thought, how are we going to finance the repayment of those euro bonds? Natural answer, let's create euro taxes. And a natural euro tax is environmental taxes. So uh, it may not fit in with an easy politics, and you're in in the area of politics, but it seems to me that this is an area where it would be both good for the economy and give the EU a better foundation, revenue foundation, in which it can undertake a lot of the other activities. You know, if if EU had had more a stronger fiscal support, it might have been able to do better in acquisition of vaccines and the management of the vaccine distribution. Yeah, well, hmm. uh, oh, there's a lot of discussions we could start there. Well, I'm a strong proponent of the European Union. I used to serve almost 10 years in the European Parliament, and and I definitely also think that we should align more of our policies with regards to putting a price on pollution. But one of the problems taxation-wise and, and the reason why I'm not that much in favor of aligning that is that we're so different in the way that we've set up our political systems. We, Some of us are universal welfare states, Denmark, Sweden. Uh, some are more uh, insurance-based systems like uh, Germany. You're not going to move into the American federal model where two-thirds of all spending is at the federal level. 
The question is right now, the uh, EU spending is in the range of one, two percent of EU GDP. That's just too small. And what I'm saying is that you could have a uh, these environmental taxes, maybe a few other taxes. It's still going to be small. So that's not going to be inconsistent with the different countries in Europe going their own way in their broader social pol economic policy. So I understand you, you know, that there, that there is a desire, a need, you might say, different circumstances in the different countries to, to have different economic frameworks. But if you're going to have a common market, you need some basic other aspects of commonality. And you've recognized that. For instance, you have the European uh, Investment Bank a very important institution. So you've recognized that. And what I'm saying is there's still a need for a little bit more common taxation. Time is of an essence, of course. Uh, we need to fundamentally change the way we the way we produce and consume energy, but also food, uh, the way we... Uh, the way our industry produces uh, goods within the next 10 years. So we need a price on carbon uh, more or less uh, tomorrow. Now we're, we're trying to do it as fast as we can in Denmark, but we have experts working on different models now, and it's probably going to take us a, a few years. But if we were to wait for, let's say that there could be a support for more European common policies on, on taxation. First of all, I, I find that it's probably not going to be very feasible, but if it was, it would take too long time. So the question, I don't know if you have any advice for us, but do you see any ideas of how can you manage it as a nation state in the European Union if you want to move forward like Denmark does? I think that Holland, the Netherlands wants to do it also. Germany is also looking at different schemes. Are there any tools in the toolbox of an economist that you can use to avoid carbon leakage if you don't have a common European Uh, system. Uh, as you said, it's it's really difficult uh, because you you uh, have this free movement of goods across borders. Um, one thing that that uh, uh, many countries do in their value added taxes give rebates on exports. So one of the ideas I've talked about uh, is a Uh, something like a, a value-added carbon tax, right? so that when you export, uh, you you get a rebate, uh, keeps your competitiveness. But in terms of production, uh, firms will be very sensitive to carbon. You know, and part of this is just making people think about carbon. To me, that's you know, eighty percent of the battle. To make, uh, and and particularly in most of the countries I know, car, you know, I've talked talk a lot to CEOs. To, to they want to be part of the solution, and their workers want, and their children want them to. You put all this together, I think there's going to be a lot of people working hard to get to uh, the climate change. I mean. Especially in Europe, where it's been elevated to such importance. In America, with Biden, it's been elevated. The young people. Um, so with that massive movement, I think we, could, we we may be able to make it. 
And the only thing, as you say, is you don't want to have this carbon leakage. You don't want to encourage the production to occur in bad places. And VAT style rebate may be one way of maintaining good production without losing competitivity. And we're also looking at different ways of having uh, concrete subsidies for the companies affected. So as we expand the tax base for the carbon tax, we try and preempt some of the negative consequences by helping the companies to transform their production before the tax sets in. Now, this is, of course, a pretty expensive solution, but right now where we also have money to spend in economic restart stimulus packages, that might be a good way of directing those money. Well, yes. Uh, one has to be careful uh, within the European framework of being charged with state aid. Uh, you're not out. But where this could be particularly effective is in R&D, in training of individuals. Uh, and uh, one of the main ways that we're going to achieve, uh, protect the, the environment, uh, achieve carbon neutrality is going to be through R&D. So, um, and this then plays into your long-term growth strategy. Uh, if you're doing R&D, you're making your firms more competitive. And I've talked to, you know, some Danish energy companies, they're way ahead uh, of the game. Uh, you know, and they just said, you know, it was so clear that carbon was fossil fuels were a thing of the past. And they recognized this early and uh, began the transition. Very brave, courageous. But it turned out to be very right. Yeah, well, Ørsted, uh, the Danish energy company, is sometimes... Uh sometimes placed as number one of the list of uh, sustainable companies in the world. And they they had another name before. <laughs> they were called uh, Dong, which is short for Danish oil and natural gas exploration. Uh, so, you know, that was an oil and gas company that's totally changed and is now a very, very sustainable uh, company, even also building uh, wind farms in, in, in the U.S. Now, I'd like to ask you uh, about a different way of setting a price on, on carbon because... We always talk about tax, and that no doubt that all is going to be a part of the solution. But in my view, looking at the European level, then the cap and trade system that we have now, the ETS, that we are now also looking at expanding to the non-ETS sector. So now it's heavy industry. In the future, it'll probably also be uh, transport sector, buildings, and and maybe even the agricultural sector. Uh, in your opinion, is that a Better working system or worse working system than a taxation? Uh, in general, I, I've been more supportive of the taxation system uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, one is that uh, the um, allocation of the rights uh, to pollute, if you want to put it that way, is a very contentious issue. And sometimes they do it on a historical basis, how much did you pollute? But that rewards the companies that were slow 
in reducing their pollution. You give more rights to those who were the bigger polluters. And uh, that doesn't seem fair. If some company got ahead of the game and reduced its pollution 30 years ago, they don't get many pollution rights. And then you have a lot of lobbying going on uh, about, you know, should I get more pollution rights? Uh, and then you have the lobbying about the aggregate level of pollution rights. Uh, and the, the, that's one of the reasons why the price has been low in Europe, uh, low relative to what it should be in the European trading system. So, uh, it's, you know, one thing that's very clear uh, there's a lot of things that are not clear. And that means that uh, we will have to adjust the price over time or we'll have to adjust the caps over time. And so both of these are going to require dynamic adjustment. But um, it seems to me that the framework of... Uh, Taxation with regulation and public investment is a simpler framework and an easier framework for making the adjustments that we're going to have to need. Really? Because I would argue the opposite. I would say that, okay, I agree with you if you just put a price on carbon and then that's it. But because you need all the other mechanisms to make sure that it doesn't lead to inequality, to make sure that jobs just doesn't move and all of that, that would constitute a very complex system, whereas... In the ETS, I agree with you with all the problems that you mentioned that's, that's been with the system so far. But on the other hand, instead of having to calculate what you think might be the right level for a tax, here you can actually calculate exactly how much you should decrease your emissions and then put a cap on it. And you know that you will, re that you will live up to it because you'll just cut the numbers of allowances every year. And I agree with you that for companies that's been doing a grand trans green transformation for decades, it's probably a disadvantage. But for companies that are doing a good job now, it's, it creates the positive incentive that if they do it faster than they have to, they can then auction their allowances and that can help them then uh, finance the transformation. The effect of the uh, uh, two systems in terms of incentives is very, very similar. Uh, and as you say, uh, there is this question of dynamic adjustment. And what I wanted to emphasize is on both of them, we're going to have to repeatedly adjust and adjust, as we don't know. So the argument that was used by a lot of people in the beginning, we know the quantity and let's fix that and let the market determine the price, is okay in a static world. I found that a That's a strong argument in a static world. It is much less compelling in a dynamic world with lots of uncertainty where next year we're going to have to re-examine. Was that the right quantity? So we still have to re-examine it. In the case of the price, we set the price. We see the quantity. We say it wasn't working. We have to raise it. And, and so you go through exactly the same calculation in both. So it's it's um, there's a little bit of a false precision that was given in the early discussions where people pretended that they knew exactly the level of emissions that was going to be required to get to the one and a half degree, two degrees. You know, let me say in terms of, of, of this uncertainty, 
we don't even know what our goals should be. When we began back in Copenhagen, it was two degrees. But the evidence coming in now is revised our thinking a lot. And we're beginning to think that that the risk is so great that we ought to uh, curve it to our goal should be one and a half degrees. There was a very influential IPCC report saying how much the difference is between one and a half and two degrees. So that just gives you another example of, of how we are going to be in a dynamic framework where we are going to have to, every few years, revisit this issue. And I could add to that that, I mean, that's true. We don't. We thought it was two degrees, where after which the self-enhancing effects would set in, and and we needed to stay below that. Now I think most scientists would say it's probably 1.5 degrees. But but adding to that, we're not even sure how 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 much of a concentration of CO2 particles in the atmosphere that correlates to. I think we used to say 450 ppm for two degrees. Well, that might not be true. It might be 350. If that's the case, then, well, basically, we're already in a very bad place. So this is so complex. But nonetheless, as politicians, decision makers, we are trying to build systems to remedy this. And maybe, well, I'm beginning to think at least, that maybe instead of focusing too much on these market-based instruments, they are a part of the solution and I'm not neglecting them. But maybe we should start with the other more easy solutions that we know will help. We don't know how exactly how much they will help, but they will help regulation, for instance. Why not say, let's have a, let's have a phase-out date of new uh, combustion engine vehicles on the market. From 2030, you're not allowed to produce a combustion engine car anymore. I agree absolutely. No, no coal-fired electric power plants. No, all cars have to be electric uh, by 2030. Uh, you know, a simple regulations that are easy to implement, necessary if we're going to be carbon neutral. We know they're necessary. We know they're not ne- they're not sufficient, but these are big things that we can do quickly. And uh, as I say, it's all part also of making people start thinking green. And uh, there are many other components uh, where you're not going to be quite so regulatory, but but as people start thinking green, I don't know if you, in the United States, there's a lot, people are moving towards vegetarian, vegan, there's a lot of interesting research going on and creating uh, foods that are vegetarian-based, that are uh, like meat in terms of the protein and taste. So we we are succeeding in many ways of of a very rapid uh, transition. The uh, pace at which uh, the cost of renewable energy has come down has been uh, phenomenal. And... uh, uh, so, you know, th- this gives me some optimism. And but one of the things that we know about markets is that they're often lethargic. <laughs> they don't look very far ahead and they need, a, they need a little push. And the regulations can be a very constructive way of pushing uh, the markets. And of course, and this probably goes contrary to what many economists would say, but. 
I don't know your opinion on it, but I would say we're in a situation where we really need to pick the winners. Now, you focused on R&D uh, earlier, and uh, there's a lot of good to be said about that the scientist decides where to do the research, and then we'll see what they come up with. But because we're so busy, because we need action now, we need to also focus on some some technologies, uh, carbon capture and storage, carbon capture and utilization, power to X, all of these things. And the reason why I'm I'm I believe so strongly in this is that it's been done before. If we look at all the technologies that are helping us now, you mentioned the low price on renewables. Well, when we made the first offshore wind farm in in the world in Denmark in 1991, it really wasn't a very lucrative business and we had to spend a lot of money subsidizing it. Thank God we did because that was the beginning of what is now uh, turned out to be very good not only business, that's one part of it, but more importantly, it helps us in, in the green transformation uh, globally. So so, so, what's your opinion on, on governments uh, being quite uh, aggressive in subsidizing uh, new technologies? So first let me say that a lot of what needs to be done can be done with old technologies. I mean, for instance, we we know that we can make much better insulated buildings, you know, and make getting to the goals that we need is a societal transformation. And uh, uh, we just need to have regulations saying, if you want uh, a mortgage, you have to have a green building. So those are, you know, we can get a lot better. Let me make that clear. Uh, and when you think of R&D, you often think about R&D in, in the big things, big technologies, big turbines. But a lot of the <clears throat> advances are little things making buildings more energy efficient, architects working day and night to get a better building. So you sh shouldn't just focus on the big things. But on the particular issues, governments have always picked winners. Um, they have to. All basic research is financed, almost all, by governments. And governments have to decide where that money should go. Their citizens want them to. And I got to say, the U.S. government has done a fantastic job. Good portfolios of research projects, you want a portfolio, are going to have some big winners and some things that are not going to pan out. And unfortunately, the critics always point to the things that didn't work. They don't talk about the things that did work. Among the things in the U.S. that did work, the Internet. How much have we benefited from the Internet? And basically in the middle of the pandemic, the, the, the browser. Could we have used the Internet without the browser? But even electricity, you know, the, the, a lot of people focused on the one failure. Tesla, the... Car companies, the most valuable car company in the, in the world now, got a half a billion dollar loan from uh, investment from the U.S. government. That was a good winner. So let's, let's you know, be. Uh, I, I did a research when I was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, and I looked at our average return on public investment in R&D. It was about 70% rate of return. No private sector comes anywhere near that rate of return. So basically, to, to finish this great conversation, 
more strict regulation, put a price on carbon, and invest heavily in, in research and development, and don't be afraid to pick winners. And, 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 and that's it. We'll save the planet. That's right. <laughs> okay, uh, Mr. Stiglitz, uh, thank you so much for for joining me, uh, and thank you so much for your your insights uh, in 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 these issues over the years, uh, both uh, climate change, globalization, and and not least uh, the price of uh, inequality and how to avoid that. It's been uh, a pleasure reading your books and a great inspiration. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. Very near you. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.